0: Welcome to the Absite Smackdown podcast. We'll talk clinical scenarios, interesting absite facts, and interesting general surgery knowledge. Now, let's get to it.
1: Hey guys, welcome back. It's me, your host Jess with Absite Smackdown podcast. And with me as always, Dr. David Kashmir and our special guest today, Dr. Lewis. Hey, Dr. Lewis.
2: Hello there. How are you doing?
1: Fantastic. Nice to have you. Dr. K, last time you uh, had Dr. Lewis on, I was on vacation. So this is my first time getting to meet with you guys. I'm really excited.
3: Yeah, you said you had a great time. You left me all alone and Claudine carried the day with me. Uh, This time, it's nice to have you back. And uh, I'm excited to have Dr. Claudine Lewis back with us today. Now, Dr. Lewis is in a combined cardiothoracic residency. And our last Uh, time together. We talked all about that model. So check that out if you have interest about Clauden, that type of training, and really the bonuses and interesting points about it, if you think it might be for you. Uh, Dr. Lewis, as you know, is a a resident in a combined cardiothoracic surgery residency at the University of Rochester in Mm -hmm. New York. And again, it's great to have you back on the show with us today, Clauden. So welcome back.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Great.
1: I'm so glad you guys are here. Okay. So Today, the show, what we're going to talk about, um, you know, it's really awesome. Dr. Lewis already had some things that he wanted to discuss and wanted to go over. So I'm going to turn it over to you guys and let you lead because everything that he wants to do today is great, especially because we are three months from absite. That is right. Three months from absite. Now is the time to start crunching and getting it together. So if you guys want to go ahead and take over and do the scenario, and then we can talk about what we need to be doing and go from there.
3: Well, one of the things I think, Claudine, you can really help me out with today is a kind of a current take on a reflux disease uh, and different uh, related items. It's something I see a lot uh, in practice and in training. And I'm just interested today if you would share with us some of your thoughts on both reflux and foregut procedures in general.
2: Yeah. So um, in cardiothoracic surgery, which is the current specialty I'm going into, it's a dual specialty. Um The one half, we're dealing with matters of the heart um, in regards to the chest. And the other half, we're dealing with matters of everything in the chest outside of the heart. So that obviously includes the esophagus. Um, So we do a lot of um, foregut-related surgeries, which is just complex general surgery, to be completely honest with you. And um, it's very popular. A lot of patients um, have this problem, um, be it uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease. And for some patients who have uh, bad reflux for a long period of time, they tend to also have uh, ongoing parosolvage or hernery happening at the same time for some of these older patients. And it's important to try to parse out, you know, the the difference between the two. There are some relationships in regards to procedure, um, but there's some nuances that makes it very different, you know.
3: Well, Claudine, I'll I'll share with you, this is so timely and important because across the United States, really for more than the last, boy, 20 years now, especially with the advent of Prilosec and anti-ulcer medications, foregut surgery is something that we currently think we need to do an even better job of educating uh, resident colleagues and future Mm -hmm. surgeons uh, in. Uh, Because again, not just with the advent of the proton pump inhibitors, but with lifestyle changes, uh, discovery of H. pylori and related things, the amount of foregut procedures that uh, was seen and kind of the uh, routine perforated ulcer, etc., It's just not seen as much some think anymore. And so this foregut area is especially important for training now. And it sounds like that's something you've seen in your training.
2: It definitely is something that I've seen a great deal on the thoracic side of what it is that we do. Um, It's rather interesting and very different skill set to have. We're doing a lot of laparoscopic, thoracoscopic procedures, mostly laparoscopic for this problem in particular.
3: Well, I think one of the most useful things we can do today for our colleagues who are listening out there is kind of step through a typical foregut-related case uh, based on maybe what we've seen. Mm -hmm. So, Claudine, what have you seen in uh, your practice and what comes to you guys up there in Albany that you can share with us today? Okay.
2: Well, I'm currently in um, where I'm currently practicing as a a seeing the esophageal hernias. Uh, parasophageal hernia would be the you know straightforward name for it, although they're not all parasophageal. Um, for instance, we have the type 1 hernia, which is going to be our most common. It's our sliding hiatal hernia. And for the most part, you can probably walk around the street. And if you were to do uh, an endoscopy on those patients, you would probably see that there are a great deal of people who are absolutely asymptomatic have a hiatal hernia. Mm-hmm. I probably do in regards to sliding hiatal hernia, it's the vast majority um, of the four types. Mm-hmm. And then you have the type two, which um, has a G junction that is below, but you have a large esophageal hiatus with the fundus um, herniated without the G junction. Um, so that's uh, another problem. You have your type three where the, both the G junction and the fundus goes up and then you have your type four where additional organs, as well as the G junction and fundus um, traverse into the chest cavity.
0: The AbSite Smackdown podcast, visit the Smackdown at com. Yeah.
3: Well, I appreciate you stepping us through the types and, and let me correct myself, obviously to my colleagues, such as yourself in Rochester, which is where you're located, <laughs> not Albany. I have Albany on the brain from a friend of mine. I just spoke with, an ex-trauma uh, program manager. So please pardon me, and your excellent, my excellent colleagues up in Rochester, I'm sure, see plenty of ulcer disease, it sounds like you do, and hernia disease. I do appreciate you mentioning how important the position of the GE junction is uh, with these patients. Uh, if the GE junction is located in the abdomen and there's a fundus in the chest, that's a more urgent, typically, the general surgical take on it. So that's a more urgent type of repair necessary uh, than some of the other types owing to areas of necrosis along the stomach from that tight band of crura or diaphragm that may compress it and cause what are called Cameron's ulcers, if you look on the inside of the stomach. So I do appreciate you mentioning the GE junction position and the stomach position relative to it is so important uh, for these hernia types. And again, there's that risk of, of volvulus of the stomach uh, associated with it. So it sounds like you guys uh, do a lot of what we do, which is uh, type the hernia and kind of go with repair from there. But I'm interested to learn, have you seen what we've seen, which is a lot of the patients who have these hernias, especially seemingly a type two, true parasympathia they have a lot of comorbidities. So how do you all like to work these patients up or what do you like to do uh, prior to procedure for them?
2: Well, the most important thing I would say for most patients is one, are they symptomatic Um, which means essentially, can you offer them something that can make them better? And two, would you be causing them any harm? So for the patient who has multiple comorbidities, it's important to go through the risks, the benefits and the alternatives. You know, Um, Sometimes you'll have patients who will describe some symptoms that are atypical um, for this presentation. And if you were to do this procedure and not fix their primary problem, that would be a problem. So if someone comes in and they're telling that they have profound shortness of breath. They're not able to walk, you know, even a couple of steps. And then you see on a CT scan, a large parasophageal hernia. The quick thing that most people will say is, oh my goodness, I have stomach that's in my chest. Um, you have to reduce this and fix this problem because it's going to make my breathing better. There are some studies that say that it will improve, um, your capacity, maybe about 10 or 15%. But in some cases, it's actually never a lot of stomach that's causing someone to have such a profound change um, in their breathing. You know, more mm-hmm. so the reason to repair it are for obstruction mm-hmm. uh, for Cameron's ulcers, as you described, for which they're having symptomatic anemia from mm-hmm. uh, concern that they can viralize and have a life threatening problem. Those are more of the reasons to do it. And sometimes you want to do it. Uh, a little bit earlier when they're slightly younger, when you know that they can tolerate it because this is a problem we're seeing more so um, in the elderly, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that it's very important to try to parse out um, who you're dealing with and can you make them better? 75% of the population who are having um, parasolibody or hernia repairs happen to be um, females, um, sometimes over the age of 70, additional comorbidities, as you described. They might have the reflux and the dysphagia for which you might go down another pathway, but it's important to understand that they have this parasophageal hernia. Um, do they have any Cameron's ulcers as part of this problem? Um, has there ever been any acute onset of severe abdominal pain? Should that be the case? You know, um, an urgency needs to be, you know, crossing your mind that there a problem may be in place and we should consider what's going on. In some cases, you want to, you know, get an EGD down and take a look. You want to do an esophagram and see what the anatomy is, see how large this hernia is, what's actually going up, the tortuosity. Um, All of those things could be answered with some of those studies. So um, endoscopy is invaluable, and so I believe is a a esophagram as well. Um, Upper GI series is great.
3: Well, I, I like what you said, especially about tailoring it to the particular patient because so many of these patients have comorbidities especially, you know, even if it's a more urgent problem, like the uh, parasophageal, true parasophageal type two hernia with, again, the GE junction, the belly and the stomach in the chest, it's still important, even with that one, to really have a sense of the patient, their functional status, uh, et cetera. And so I also think uh, just as you said, that getting an upper GI with gastroview can really help delineate or another contrast medium, depending can really delineate the position of that junction. Sometimes it can be tough to tell even on CT uh, with the different cuts exactly where everything is. So that can be a useful adjunct. And I'm curious, Dr. Lewis, do you guys use any of the classic scoring systems for reflux in these patients? Before we get to the repair and other items like that. Some people use a Demeester score. Some people just go with straight symptoms. Some people advocate for pH monitors, even if it's just a GERD issue and there's not an anatomic reason for repair. So how do you guys approach that? Do you use any scoring systems or is it mostly based on clear symptomatology as as one of your decision points?
2: Well, for one, I would say it depends on the resources that you have available. Okay, so if you're going, you know, in a small institution and you don't immediately have opportunities to do some of these investigative studies, it's possible that you can forego it. Having said that, here um, at the University of Rochester, um, we've been fortunate under uh, my attendings, Dr. Jones, Dr. Peyre, Dr. Lada, um, to have an esophageal motility clinic um, Mm -hmm. where we as the thoracic surgeons um, actually see all of our patients. We do diagnostic studies, um, unlike GI only, you know. Um, we actually can diagnose our patients um, in our clinic and we can take them to the operating room. And that's actually not available in many institutions. Yeah. So having standard workup um, would again, depend on the chief complaint. So if we're going down the pathway of someone having GERD or someone having um hernia concern based on a CT scan, um, some of the investigative studies I guess would be similar. So we would do an esophagram outside um, of our clinic that can get done in a, in a uh, some type of a uh, suite where for radiology. But we would do an endoscopy. so an EGD, assess the esophagus, assess the stomach, you know, go into the first part of the duodenum, assess all that we're seeing, take a look visually at the esophagus, see what damage um, reflux may have caused. But we are doing pH probe testing. The demistra score is technically the, the best way to diagnose someone with reflux. You can have irritation and it not necessarily be acid. It can be many things um, that are showing you a concern for what it isn't. So the pH probe would be our best method to diagnose some acid reflux. So we are doing um, the score testing with um, a pH probe. We're doing the EGD as mentioned also, but we're also doing manometry. Mm -hmm. So we're actually putting down a catheter, doing 10 swallows and assessing the strength of the different segments of the esophagus. Um, Why is that important? Because the treatments that we're going to provide will let us know. So um, if you were to forego those patients um, studies for, for instance, um, manometry on all of the patients, then you might have a segment cohort of your the patients you're treating that you do a full wrap and they may not tolerate it. They may have substantial Mm disimposed stop, you know, for many months, you know, requiring serial.
3: You you read, you read my mind because I think what I was first, it sounds like you guys are very well resourced for the workup of your patients. Mm -hmm. And I think, as you said, it's so crucial to do those investigations for just the reason that you're getting to. And so, yeah, if you don't mind, step us through what typical repair options look like and some of the classics questions that come up, like, do we wrap, do we not wrap? Do certain, who gets uh, these post-operative issues where they have a uh, distension of the stomach owing to a uh, tight wrap, just kind of the, even the anatomic considerations, what kind of intra-abdominal esophageal length you go for, any thoughts you have on repairs in general in these people. And we're kind of lumping reflux disease and parasophageal hernias together. But as you said, so many, let's uh, say with a parasophageal hernia repair, warrant a rap also. So what are your thoughts in general? Who do you wrap? What complications do you see? And what kinds of repairs do you like to do for these difficult for gut patients?
0: The Absite Smackdown Podcast, bringing you the best for your absite review. Awesome. It sounds like we're almost ready for a case. Um,
2: <laughs> Uh, well, I'll, I'll just make this up to be completely honest with you. It's the same as that conversation we're having. So, you know, let's say we had a 50-year-old um, patient, let's uh, go with Mel, presents to the clinic and complaining of dysphagia regurgitation and heartburn. To be completely honest with you, the moment you heard, you hear that, You're going to say to yourself, that's exactly the typical symptoms of gastroesophageal reflux disease. Everything else that you can think of under the sun that they'll complain of is going to be atypical outside of that. Once they start saying shortness of breath, they start saying nasal drip, you know, it's possible that reflux could be causing those things. Reflux could be causing aspiration and you're getting acid, you know, down to your lung area. You're having that shortness of breath. It's possible, but it's not typical. You know, the nasal drip, possible, but could be several other things, not necessarily typical. And it's important to to parse out what's typical and what's atypical, because if you say to yourself, this person is concerning for reflux, has typical symptoms, then the treatments that you can provide in anti-reflux surgery um, would likely treat their symptoms. But if they have atypical symptoms that could be done, um, that could be due to uh, multiple etiologies, one of which could be gastroesophageal reflux disease. And it's possible you can offer them an operation and they continue to have these symptoms because it wasn't related at all. So for that patient, we're doing our diagnostic studies, as I mentioned earlier. So we're doing a barium esophagram to assess um, how everything is emptying, um, the anatomy, um, from outside, just how everything is just kind of sitting and relaxing. And we can get a lot of information from that. But we're also doing an EGD. And for the patient that may or may not have had EGDs, this is important, because as we start to deal with pathologies of the esophagus, cancer can cause some of these problems, you know, Absolutely. tumor causing... A mass effect. You have cancer that could be um, causing an intrinsic compression from outside in. That's causing some of the dysphagia-related symptoms. So you got to make sure that you're not dealing with the cancer and offering an, uh, a non-cancer operation. You know, uh, so well, we would. Well, do- then,
3: I think this is all well said. And for the patient that you talked about, I mean, let's pretend uh, we you know we do our workup, and we get a, a type three, let's say hernia. Um, I'm, I'm really curious to learn what kind of approaches you guys are using for parasophageal hernias in general. Let's say that's what we think is causing this reflux. Nothing on EGD that looks like cancer uh, and uh, looks like um, they are clearly refluxing acid in the esophagus based on your pH probe. What, what kinds of repairs are you typically seeing now in, in your cardiothoracic combined fellowship and any specific thoughts on them?
2: Awesome. So now it's very important that you said that. So now my head is going to go down the pathway of this is a parasophageal hernia. I'm now going to switch off the this is just a a, a esophageal sphincter that's causing the problem. Now we have an anatomical problem um, for which we're having these symptoms that are causing. So the true operation for this is going to fix a couple of things you want to bring everything back to normal. So you want your stomach to be um, in your abdomen where it belongs and no longer in your chest. And you also want some type of, you know, door that's preventing things from going from your stomach to your esophagus. It's pretty much that simple. If you can establish true anatomy as best you could and prevent things from refluxing back. So the operations that we would be offering would depend on, the patient's esophagus and what they can tolerate. So it goes back to doing the EGD and at that time placing the manometry catheter so you can see how effective their esophagus is at emptying. And should I have an esophagus that's effective at emptying, that means that a bolus of food is going from one area at the UES going all the way down to the LES and NTs into the stomach with the appropriate pressures, Um, then that's someone that I would say to myself, they have good motility. Then I would look at the pressures and be a little bit precise, there's definitely a little bit more to it. But then I would say to myself, this patient can or cannot tolerate a Nissen fundoplication, which would technically be the standard of care for an anti-reflux surgery Um, And at the same time, you're bringing the stomach back into the abdomen, which is also taking care of the parasophageal hernia problem that you're having. So a patient who may have had reflux for many years and has a parasophageal hernia you might be dealing with a shortened esophagus through all that inflammation for many of those years. So when I bring that stomach back into the abdomen, I want to make sure I have preferably, you know, two and a half, three centimeters of intra-abdominal esophagus. So I've already ruled that that esophagus can tolerate a wrap. I want to make sure I have intra-abdominal esophagus for length for the most part. And if I don't, I need to address that or we're going to deal with this again. You know, next year, their stomach after my procedure is going to be in their chest again. So there's also a procedure called a callous gastroplasty so that you can consider so that you can kind of get a little bit more length. You're kind of uh, approaching upon the stomach and kind of tubularizing that in order to get more length. Of course, you can get a leak from that. That's technically now you're, you know, entering that stomach and, you know, Getting into it, so you want to be very, very careful um, when you add that as a procedure. But for the most part, if you're, you know, going all the way up as high as you can, you know, dissecting out the esophagus, you're going from pleura to pleura, you're going essentially retrocardiac, um, you're just trying to see if you can get as much length. Um, and tissue off that esophagus so that you can make sure you're able um, to do a wrap. And I would perform a 360 degree Nissen fundoplication on the patients that can tolerate it.
3: Yeah, I think (laughs) you described it really well. You beat me to it with the collis gastroplasty. I was going to ask you for your thoughts on it. Not something we have to do much, but when you have a foreshortened esophagus uh, and you dissected fully, but yet you cannot recreate that two and a half or so centimeters of intraabdominal abdominal esophagus. It's something you may have to do and fire the stapler and wrap the area, uh, whether you put a bougie down to ensure the area is patent, if you can. Of course, that can be very challenging, you know, when it's such a friable or foreshortened or scarred down esophagus. I think you hit all the highlights of the important technical considerations. Of course, we're going to close the crura. We're going to recreate the abdominal as much as we can. We're going to recreate that intraabdominal length. We're going to wrap the area typically. Uh, and it's really interesting to me as an aside, as we wrap up, I was interested when I learned that the Nissen fund application was originally for gunshot wounds to the area. That was actually one of the first things it was used for, for defects right near the GE junction. It was a way to wrap the stomach around it uh, to prevent leakage. So fascinating to me, this procedure I always thought of for reflux as a resident was one of the initial indications was trauma to the area to wrap the stomach around it. So what better way to kind of prevent leak from a colis gastroplasty or similar issue with the section around the esophagus? Uh, what better way than to wrap uh, the stomach around that area as described? Really fascinating to me. And I think you nicely stepped us through a difficult case. Any, any other thoughts you have in these patients other in addition to the technical considerations? for follow-up or things like that that you typically see in your clinic?
2: Yeah, so um, the one thing that I would add, I would consider doing a bougie. Um, Some would do anywhere from 51 and up. I would probably do a 54. 54, Um, yeah. That would probably be my preference. Um, For some of these patients, we're going to see them post-op to make sure that they tolerate these things because some of the pitfalls or complications are that your wrap could be a little bit too tight. And it's not that you necessarily your wrap is tight on majority of these patients post-op sometimes it's due just to the inflammation and swelling that you would have in that area. So sometimes it's important not to jump the gun and say, you know, this is too tight. I have to take everything down. In some cases you just don't advance the diet. You know, you leave them on a clear or a little bit more than clear, um, maybe full liquid diet. If they can tolerate that, you know, they go home, you assess their symptoms as frequent as necessary. And in some Cases it may take a couple of months if necessary for that inflammation to go all the way down. And between then you're considering, is this someone that I need to go back in and take everything down, establish normal anatomy and rewrap or do a partial will be another opportunity. Um, Or is this someone that you can do some dilations after the appropriate time that they're healing? But for the most part, I would say conservative therapeutics such that you're having them, uh, Take a diet that's not necessarily completely solid as of yet, be careful to not do the things that require a lot, a lot of chewing, such as the heavy meats, um, where you're just chewing a lot and having a tough time getting it down. So those
0: are going to be some of the things that I would say are very important to watch out for. The AbSight SmackDown Podcast is based on the best-selling review book, AbSite SmackDown. The only AbSite review with an entire video review course included. Visit AbSightSmackDown.com and pick it up today. Okay.
3: Well, again, I appreciate you stepping us through the case. You really hit a lot of the highlights for the difficult foregut procedures that we encounter as we try to repair it. So, yeah, again, really appreciate your time today talking us through it and what you've seen. Uh, in your combined cardiothoracic surgery residency. For those of you who don't know, let me, or need reminding, uh, Dr. Lewis has uh, put together as uh, one of the editors, as the editor for the TSRA uh, 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 guidelines um, for a nice textbook that's available on Amazon. And uh, the title, Claudine, can you prompt me on the title again exactly so I don't flub it for the listeners?
2: That's all good. We have a couple of titles. So the thoracic surgery resident association has uh, essentially been in the trenches of creating some educational opportunities for our cohort. And again, half of our specialty is thoracic surgery. So it's relevant there if you want to get more reading. Um, yeah. One of them, is the TSRA algorithms textbook. Um, yeah. for
3: the TSRA decision algorithms and cardiothoracic surgery is the one that I've been through. It nicely highlights the issues, some of them that we've talked about today. So I know I've appreciated you guys putting that together, and uh, you as the editor, uh, Claudine. Thank you so much for doing that. Absolutely.
1: Okay, guys, well, speaking of editing and books, that brings us back to, not only are we having version three coming out soon, but we have decided to do something else here at Abside SmackDown. Um, We are gonna be doing a conference. Yes, a conference, really exciting. Um, You don't have to travel for it. It's gonna be completely online. We're gonna have it three days in January. 8th, 9th and 10th. We're gonna have lots of speakers there. Dr. Lewis is gonna be one of our speakers. Also some of the other doctors from Absite SmackDown team that helped, um, were co-authors on the chapters. So it's gonna be a three day event. Um, tickets can be bought worldwide. Not only depending, I know a lot of frustration comes with residents, you're on call, you're doing things, you're gonna miss miss parts and it's hard to travel. So this kind of solves all of that. It's online, if you get called away, you can, everything's being recorded so you can come back and watch it later. Just lots of good things happening. Um, Dr. K, is there anything you want to add about it? Because
3: No, I'm excited. <laughs> uh, you guys showed me the preview of the venue. I think yeah. it was great. I didn't really understand how online conferences have, have been going. I saw some during COVID. I participated in some. Normally it was more of like a video chat, but right. I think in this case with the platform you guys have set up, and the fact that you're videoing everything, so if they're on call, they can see it later. I think that's going to be super useful. Um, I think it's great to not have to travel. It cuts down on you know time away. You don't have to buy an airline ticket, et cetera. So I was all for it. Uh, I can't wait to participate. It sounds like you guys are getting together a whole bunch of great speakers. So it's going to be good. And it is going to follow the book. So a lot of the slides will... Uh, follow the book, and speakers are tweaking them to AB site specific stuff. And I know, as we talked a little bit ahead of time, um, we're interested to hear from Dr. Lewis because there are about three months left for the test. I know Clauden's had absite experience too, uh, like I have. So um, let me just go with it. Clauden, what did you like to do three months or so before the test uh, for the AB site when you're facing it?
2: Yeah, so uh, again, um, I will say I'm a little bit removed. This was uh, the first uh, one and two years of my six-year training program mm-hmm. that we were doing the absite curriculum, but we were responsible for that. And were all six years, we were doing our thoracic surgery and training exam as well. And what I like to do was to follow an established curriculum. Um, I was doing my training during the time of score, you know, in the past. So I would follow whatever the calendar items that I created, have a pattern, stick to it, try to get to certain readings that had the best opportunity for understanding that topic. So if I wanted to go over um, a topic, for instance, let's just choose like foregut, I would choose my favorite text that I can get the resource from, you know, recopy some notes and do some highlighting and say to myself that if someone was to create an exam, they would probably mention this topic because it's that crucial and that important. And I would try to make sure I keep that in the back of my head and I would do questions, you know, tons of questions.
3: Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. First, SCORE is an excellent resource. That curriculum is fantastic. And then after SCORE or alongside SCORE, there are all these absite reviews. And of course, absite Smackdown is one of them. Um, I found in prepping it, it's really useful in that it's very absite focused, where SCORE goes even beyond that. Um, but I would say, we always say this, Absite Smackdown doesn't replace score. It really complements it. And I also like what you said, Claudine, questions are really associated with absite performance. Once you have that content down, questions are key. And I know uh, the Absite Smackdown provides questions, uh, but there are lots of question banks out there. And I think you hit the nail on the head that uh, doing a lot of questions really helps secure a reasonable absite score. So that's a great thing.
1: That's all I hear from every resident when we ask them, you know, what are you doing? What did you do? What do you wish you would have done more of? And that's what I hear questions over and over. Either that's what got them through or they wish they would have done more of them. So, you know, you got it right there. (laughs) And
3: well, guys, I'll uh, start to wrap it up before. I know Jess is going to sign us off soon because of our time on things. Claudine, I appreciate (laughs) your time today. Dr. Lewis has stepped us through a lot of foregut stuff today, both uh, abcite focused and also focused for our practice. So next time we see a patient with a question of a parasophageal hernia, we're going to be looking for where that GE junction is. We're going to be thinking of all the factors we need to think of preoperatively, like Dr. Lewis said. And again, the TSRA decision algorithms and cardiothoracic surgery Uh, I was first introduced to that when I met Claudine and I had an opportunity to pull it and review it. Super useful for a lot of the cardiothoracic work um, as we seek to learn that. It's been very useful. So, hey, Jess, thanks for letting us talk so much today. I really appreciated the time.
1: All right. Thank you guys so much. Dr. Lewis, thank you so much for making time for me today. Can't wait to see you again. Hopefully see you before the conference. But guys, thanks so much. And don't forget, hashtag Absite Smackdown.
0: Thanks for listening to the Absite Smackdown podcast. Visit us at Absitesmackdown.com for more great Absite facts.